This week on Policy, Guns and Money, Brendan Nicholson speaks to Margaret McQuaig Johnston about Canada's declaration against arbitrary detention. I tend not to call them hostage diplomacy because there's nothing diplomatic about it. Kelsey Munro and James Leibold discuss Australia's response to human rights abuses in Xinjiang. I mean, yeah. we really need a values-based policy that is applied across the board, not mm. just China or Myanmar. There are a lot of bad actors out there and forced labor is happening across the globe and so we really need to make sure that we kind of get a, a nuanced approach that tries to deal with this issue. And Dr John Coyne and Dr Tegan Westendorf consider options for combating organised crime. What are some of the pros and cons to this cut the head off the snake approach to dismantling organised crime syndicates? Um, historically it's shown us to rarely result in a positive outcome. This is Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In February this year, Canada launched the Declaration Against Arbitrary Detention in State-to-State Relations, a global initiative which aims to raise awareness and stop the practice of arbitrary detention. Brendan Nicholson speaks with Margaret McQuaig Johnston, Senior Fellow in the Institute for Science, Society and Policy at the University of Ottawa. They discuss the effectiveness of the declaration in preventing arbitrary detention and whether more can be done through global cooperation. Well, good evening, Margaret. Canada time, it's, it's morning in Australia. It'll be very interesting to talk to you about this new legislation that Canada has, has adopted. Now, some nations appear to be increasingly willing to detain foreign nationals on trumped-up charges as a weapon against their home countries. How dangerous do you believe that practice of hostage diplomacy can be? And what drove Canada to make its declaration against the use of arbitrary detention? Well, you're right, Brendan, that these actions are being used in state-to-state relations, but I tend not to call them hostage diplomacy because there's nothing diplomatic about it. It's kidnapping. At least that's what it feels like to the person who's taken off the street by strange men in a black bag put over their head and taken to an undisclosed location with no chance to call anybody. So um, this is an initiative that was taken by Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, Francois-Philippe Champagne. Uh, He's just been switched to a different ministry in Canada, but he had this idea about uh, six months ago. He'd been dealing with the detention of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor in China, and they were taken hostage uh, a matter of just days after Meng Wanzhou was arrested in Vancouver. And um, Canada had a similar case uh, previously of the Garretts, a couple who owned a restaurant in northeast China. And they were taken, too, as leverage in another U.S. extradition case in 2014. So the minister, I think, was feeling a little um, frustrated after trying to press for the release of the Michaels for more than a year. And he felt he needed a bigger coalition of countries to get more nations to stop this uh, undiplomatic behavior. And he thought that if there were many more voices to speak out in such cases, that it might also have a deterrent effect on countries behaving that way to begin with. And so in order to get the broadest consensus possible, this international declaration didn't just target one country. Obviously, we've had our experiences recently with China, as has Australia. 
Um, but it's broader. It, it uh, addresses the behavior of arbitrary detention in state-to-state -state relations generally. Um, and, you know, the minister has said the Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, aren't just Canadian citizens. They're citizens of a liberal democracy. And that has really resonated with a lot of other countries who can see themselves in what has happened to Canada. So under the declaration, there are 58 countries that have signed so far, plus the EU as an organization. So all of those countries are on the same page. And it was interesting to see at the three-hour launch event, every one of their foreign ministers spoke. And the Eastern European countries spoke in detail about the similar tactics uh, by Russia and others mentioned Iran. And, you know, all the provisions in this declaration are, it's pretty straightforward. It's, it's provisions that are already reflected in international laws like the Vienna Convention and the UN Declaration of Human Rights. So really, there's nothing a nation can disagree with, one would think. Right. Look, this practice must be particularly frightening for individuals because it's so arbitrary it must always leave the possibility in the minds of the general public around the world that perhaps there's something in it. Maybe they were spying. Maybe they are crooks. How do you defend against that and deal with it? Well, that's what the countries perpetrating these crimes against our citizens um, are trying to create. They're trying to create a sense that perhaps these people are guilty. But one fa major factor is timing. Um, and what, you know, seemingly innocuous people are detained out of the blue and the country detaining them will often take months before indicating what their crime might be. That's what's happened to the Michaels and the Garretts. And if that's the case, it likely isn't a crime. And the other thing is um, often these actions will come just after a country has made threats of retaliation against another country. And so that's another signal. And then a third factor is how prepared is a country to kidnap people like this? I was in Shanghai when the Michaels were taken. And I mentioned this to um, Chinese national that they'd been picked up and detained. And he told me that Beijing has a list of 100 Canadians that they can pick up and, and interrogate at any time. And when I came back to Canada, two other people separately told me that there's this list of Canadians that the Chinese are keeping. And, you know, when I reflect on it, it's likely that Beijing has lists of uh, citizens of other countries too, not just Canadians. Um, and then looking at the Canadians they've kidnapped, these people are often those who have what might be considered by China to be interesting information that they could get out of them through interrogation. Michael Spavor, for example, did a lot of tours in North Korea, and that's a black box even for the Chinese. So he might be able to provide information. The couple, the Garretts, uh, who ran a restaurant in Northeast China, were right on the border with North Korea. And they raised money for an orphanage in, in North Korea, but maybe they could provide something. So there may be that kind of reason. Uh, Chung Lei has lots of business contacts they can ask her about. But I think from this um, declaration, we've seen a broad consensus among other nations 
that this type of behavior is not warranted. And uh, it's really going to start to make these countries a pariah. Look, in practical terms, Margaret, how does this piece of Canadian legislation actually protect individuals? Well, it's establishing a global coalition. And it's not going to immediately uh, bring the release of the Michaels that we can see, uh, although there's always work going on behind the scenes on their behalf. Um, but we now have 58 countries and more actively considering joining. And this is just a first step. It's also regionally diverse. And so the Canadian government is hoping to attract more uh, countries to the initiative as it gathers momentum. They developed it very quietly through their key missions abroad, rather than putting it all out there uh, to all countries at the beginning. And I also like that it covers dual citizens. They can often get caught in issues between countries. Uh, in fact, Canada has right now three Canadians who were born in China, but who've been given execution sentences for simple drug offenses. But those sentences were synchronized with the timing and the stages of Meng Wanzhou's various court hearings. So, you know, that's a, another signal. And, you know, so we've got a lot of countries now who are really actively thinking about this. We've got the U.S. on board. Antony Blinken has given it a strong endorsement uh, when he was involved in the launch two weeks ago. And since then, he's referred to it again as an important initiative. So that's a, a strong voice for it. The EU and Japan were also important in giving it traction. Um, Ban Ki-moon has endorsed it. And Canada is also trying to attract others to, uh, to it in the Indo-Pacific region. Well, Margaret, when um, you refer to people like these Canadians on drug charges who've been sentenced to, to be executed, is there any chance they might actually, as a consequence of this process, be killed? Well, you know, if they were, we wouldn't necessarily hear about it because one of the things that China's been doing recently is trying to get dual citizens or, or citizens who have accepted um, a second citizenship, which means they are no longer Chinese. If they're in China and they run into problems with the law, and this is a, true in Hong Kong as well, they're now being pressured to give up their Canadian citizenship. And so they're just treated as Chinese. And then uh, China doesn't have to uh, give Canada consular access. Um, and same would be true, of course, of um, citizens of other countries. So that's a new tactic that we're seeing. And it's one that's very concerning because we continue to press for access. And if they're just treating them as Chinese, we wouldn't know if they had executed them unless they tell us. And they don't have to tell us if they're not treating them as, as Canadian. So they could be Canadian citizens and just vanish. Yes. That's one of the many concerns we have with the way China is doing business. And, you know, um, the United Nations has a working group on arbitrary detention. And that working group has taken three uh, teams into China to look at what their conditions are in arbitrary detention. And uh, one of the things that they've recommended, that actually the most recent one was 2004. They haven't been allowed back in since then. 
but one of the things they noted is that often when people are charged, um, they're, they're charged with endangering national security, which is very broad. And so the United Nations has asked that um, in China specifically, that term be more uh, closely defined. This is something that Chang Lei has faced in her incarceration there which seemed to be in direct retaliation for Australia requesting an investigation into the origin of COVID. Well, Australians have been the subject of what appear to be fake allegations of both China and Iran. Now, individuals targeted in this practice have been accused of a range of offences ranging from white-collar crimes to espionage, and it's often difficult to separate fictitious allegations from what may be the truth. Is there anything built into the legislation that Canada has developed that enables you to do that? Well, it's it's actually a, an international declaration as opposed to legislation. So those, there's no requirement or ruling that goes along with this. It's the attitude or approach of countries that we uh, disdain this kind of uh, behavior on the part of other countries. But what we're seeing is uh, that there's retaliation and punishment for countries. And in, in some cases, what China's doing is the, the, the Chinese expression is kill the chicken to scare the monkeys. So they're, they're trying to attack one country so others don't uh, do similar kind of uh, behavior. Um, so the goals of the countries in some cases, it may be retaliation. In some cases, it may be to serve as an example of what others aren't supposed to do. In the case of Canada, it's used as leverage or collateral to get the release of our citizens. And so with the declaration, it's hoped that these tactics will increasingly be seen to be not in the interest of the countries that are doing them up until now, that they will become more and more isolated in this behavior as more countries sign on to this. Some countries hadn't been aware of, of it uh, when the declaration was made public uh, two weeks ago and are actively um, looking at, uh, at joining up and, and signing. They have to go through their own governmental approvals, of course. Margaret, thanks very much for your time. Oh, my pleasure. It's, a, I think, a very important initiative. I've, I've spoken out about the need to do more to get the release of our Canadians. It's very concerning to see um, citizens in this situation. Um, it could be anyone who travels to China or travels to Iran. And so it's important to take action, I think, uh, in collectively um, more strongly than one country can do on its own. Thanks very much. Thank you. In December 2020, Senator Rex Patrick tabled a bill in Australian Parliament to ban the importation of goods produced by Uyghur forced labour into Australia. Kelsey Munro and James Leibold joined the podcast to discuss Australia's response to human rights abuses in Xinjiang so far, what tools Australia can use, and whether this customs amendment bill is an effective tool to address forced labour globally. Hi, James. It's great to have you back in the Aspie office. Thanks for coming to visit. Um, look, we're talking in a week where there does seem to be a bit of international momentum building on the Xinjiang issue in that we've seen non-binding motions passed in the Canadian Parliament and in the Netherlands Parliament calling out China's actions in Xinjiang as a genocide. And that adds on to the Trump administration's um, designation earlier this year. 
What is Australia doing in this space? We've had a lot of expressions of concern from senior ministers. I know we were one of the signatory countries to the letter to the UN last year. Is there anything else happening in the Australian space? Well, I think uh, we're kind of falling behind our uh, liberal de- democratic colleagues in, in that regard. You know, we've repeatedly expressed, our, our government ministers have repeatedly expressed um, concern about what's happening in Xinjiang, but we haven't really seen any legislative action. Um, hence, while uh, I, I was quite pleased to see uh, Senator Patrick introduce this bill, and it will at the very least get a conversation going about what's happening in Xinjiang and what we should do about it. And I don't think that's an easy conversation to have because I think it's really complex, but we at the very least need to start to have that conversation. So th- this is a bill about banning uh, the import of goods made with forced labour in Xinjiang or in the PRC, which is a very specific bill. One of the things I think we've discussed is why wouldn't you ban the import of goods made with forced labour anywhere, which seems like a good starting point. Yeah, I think it's it's a very blunt proposal uh, as currently worded. It's quite quite uh, sparsely worded. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it you know takes a really kind of blunt instrument to a very complicated issue. I think you're right. We need to probably start by thinking about forced labour more broadly. I mean, we've got this great new modern slavery legislation, which is a starting point that really uh, has only been in, in place for a couple of years. I think um, it could be strengthened. Uh, you could reduce the uh, threshold for uh, participation in filing. You could uh, increase the sanctions on companies that don't comply. You could uh, look for them to address certain issues. Uh, for example, if you look at the filings on record already, uh, very few companies mention China or Xinjiang in specific. And so we could use that as a tool uh, to get at this uh, rather than trying to reinvent the wheel. I mean, that's one thought. And as you know, we make a number of proposals um, in uh, in the recent article uh, of ways to approach it so that we get a more sophisticated, multimodal approach to the issue. Yeah, it does seem like we have the Modern Slavery Act as a good starting point. I think the threshold for the mandatory reporting is quite high. I think sort of turnover 100 million more. So only big companies are being caught by that. And it's just sort of risk reporting. So it's, I guess, forcing transparency, which is a good start. So that does seem like a mechanism which could be used in this issue. But there's also, I think, the possibility of, say, targeting, um, if we are narrowing the problem, the the modern slavery problem down to the specific Uyghur problem in Xinjiang, which is a, a major current crisis. There are more targeted sort of options that the government could take, say sector-specific, um, certain exports that are um, linked to the forced labour in Xinjiang by sort of various um, research and evidence bases, or, or sanctioning individuals or companies involved. That might be an alternative approach. Yeah, and, and we might already have a tool in the... Um the recently created Australian Sanctions Office, which is in DFAT, that is charged with uh, maintaining and updating this um, consolidated list, which functions as a, as a kind of entity list for both corporations and individuals who are being sanctioned by the Australian government. I mean, that could easily be updated. It could be a, a mechanism to, to do this more targeted approach that you were suggesting, which seems to be m- more enforceable and uh, probably easier for, for corporations to, to navigate. And it really, it targets and, and it punishes the, the most outrageous uh, acts of behavior. So those companies that are clearly have quite extensive information about their involvement in human rights abuses in Xinjiang or forced labor in particular. 
things like the the Xinjiang Production Construction Corp, uh, one example, or uh, cotton, where uh, there's been quite a bit of evidence that um, you know cotton coming out of Xinjiang is tainted with forced labor. So I think more more targeted approaches like that will make it more enforceable. Uh, and we'll also send that message that I think we want to send to the Chinese government as well as um, uh, the rest of the international community. And the entity list type of approach seems, you would think companies interested in being ethical corporate citizens would welcome that because they're essentially being given a list of companies that they don't want to be dealing with and then that the onus is on them to check their own supply chains to ensure they're not engaging with those companies. We're not asking them to vet you know, every company in China, every factory in China, they just have to follow a government directive, yeah. which seems like a reasonable yeah, compliance Yeah, because when, when we're talking about China, we're talking about incredibly complicated supply chains. I mean, that's one of the things that really struck me when we were doing our research for Uyghurs for Sale is how companies, big multinational companies like Nike or Apple, I mean, they're relying on fourth and fifth tier suppliers that go way deep into China. And given the censorship and control regime, it's almost impossible for companies to conduct really thorough best practice um, supply chain audits. And so I think we do have to kind of also come at this from the corporate perspective. I mean, I, I do think we've got to put the onus on them, but at the same time, um, I think we need to have a conversation about what can be done to try to allow them to understand their supply chains. And there's some new some new technologies with regards to kind of tracing supply chains that have um, some potential there. And I think certainly we should be encouraging companies to innovate there and um, reward companies that show best practice in that regard. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it does seem that from the responses we've got to our report, which was published over a year ago now, Uyghurs for Sale, so this dealt with the transfer of Uyghur workers outside of Xinjiang to factories across China, and we found evidence that those workers were involved in the global supply chains of more than 80 Chinese and Western companies. There's been a really mixed response from those companies. Some of them appear to have launched thorough investigations and, and attempted to really address this risk. Um, many others, though, said, oh, no direct relationships with that supplier, so therefore not our problem. So I do think it's clear that there's a really wide variance in how committed companies are to doing something about this. Obviously, it's going to cost them money to um, change how they're doing things or, or find out you know, deeper knowledge in how they're doing things. So it does seem that governments need to play a role in as much probably more effectively than consumers can. It's extremely confusing, I think, environment for consumers to figure out who they should be avoiding in this. But governments definitely have a role to play, I think. Uh, but I think also consumers uh, are concerned about human rights abuses and forced labor, and there are benefits for those companies who want to take this seriously and um, lead by example. So much talk uh, these days about corporate social responsibility, but for a lot of companies, it appears that that's a compliance exercise, something you get the lawyers involved in. And what I'd like to see is companies actually you know, take this far more seriously and I think there are potential, you know, wins in that uh, for them with uh, consumers. I mean, consumers are becoming quite concerned about the kind of ethical implications of their purchasing habits. And um, what's happening in Xinjiang or what's happening with Uyghurs is just one example of, uh, of a range of other um, human rights abuses that, that need to be kind of dug into. What about on the the sort of multilateral side of things? I mean, 
as far as I'm aware, there is not any official coordination between Canada and the Netherlands and other companies that express concern about the Xinjiang issue. Um, but it does seem like if there was some sort of coordination in policy, you could get a better result, especially on things like forced labour import bans. What do you think about that? Yeah, What's I think the it's approach there? Crucial. Um, how mm. you make it happen is a kind of really challenging <laughs> issue as well. You know, you've got that interparliamentary alliance on China, which, you know, mm. maybe is a starting point, but often you're talking about parliamentarians that are actually not decision makers in their various um, parties. You had the Trump administration um, arguably way out in front of the rest of the international community in terms of trying to sanction China, but really adopting a kind of unilateral approach, you know, withdrawing from key bodies on the UN. I'm hoping that the Biden administration will adopt a different approach. I do think America has an important leadership role, but uh, at the same time, you know, we need countries like Australia and Canada to be talking I mean, there's a good example of uh, what the UK government and the Canadian government are trying to get a, a common set of messaging out on this issue. But why was that not done with, you know, this was the Australian government approached? I don't know. But mm. I, I think it's crucial because we, we'll speak with a louder voice. Um, and I think it will give companies a bit of reassurance of how they operate across multiple jurisdictions. So I think it's, it's crucial. But, you know, it's like a lot of things are hard to do in practice. Yeah, that's true. I guess returning to the Australian current inquiry about changing the law on the imports, it's an independent senator's bill. As you said, it's fairly light on detail and there would be a lot, need to be a lot of practicalities worked out. Do you know if it's got bipartisan backing? I mean, well, what's I, its likelihood of passing? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, my worry with the bill is that it will be used as an opportunity just to simply gang up on China. Yeah, I what about agree. you, Kelsey? Why do you think um, Senator Patrick introduced this bill and why now? Well, I, I don't, don't have any personal knowledge of why, but I imagine we were just saying Australia hasn't done anything. The Australian government has expressed concerns, which, you know, in a sense is, is, is an action on a, an issue as politically sensitive as this, but we haven't taken any concrete action to make sure that Australian consumers aren't buying products made with Uyghur forced labour. Perhaps there's some genuine concern there, but I, I suppose I do think with things that are sort of related to our core democratic values, human rights issues, um, having no slavery in our supply chains, they shouldn't be opportunistic issues. They should be constant expressions of our values that are not just brought about when we feel like we want to bang China over the head. So couldn't agree more. I mean, yeah. we really need a values-based foreign policy that is applied across the board, not mm. just at China or Myanmar. There are a lot of bad actors out there and forced labor is happening across the globe. And so we really need to make sure that we kind of get a, a nuanced approach that tries to deal with this issue globally, but at the same time, we look at the really particular concerns that are uh, associated with um, Uyghur forced labor in Xinjiang. Yeah, it was great chatting with you, Kelsey. <laughs> you too, James. And, Thank and you very much. It was a pleasure writing the article together. <laughs> Dr. John Coyne and Dr. Tegan Westendorf discussed the strategies international police are using to combat organised crime across Southeast Asia. They discussed the impacts of the arrests of Seichi Lop on organised crime in the region and policy options to counter this challenge, including the Magnitsky Act. Hi, John. Thanks for joining me this afternoon. We're going to have a chat about international policing strategies 
to counter organised crime in the Asia-Pacific region. So recently there have been some interesting developments with really high-profile arrests of syndicate leaders in the region, notably Tsi Chi Lop and one of his money laundering chiefs, Chung Chak John Lee. This has been achieved through you know, years of AFP work and coordinated efforts with neighbouring law enforcement agencies across the region. And the ensuing scandal for Crown Casinos in Australia has, as a key money laundering site for this syndicate, has shown us how deeply embedded in Australia this organised crime syndicate is and how very transnational their business models are. What are some of the pros and cons to this cut-the-head-off-the-snake approach to dismantling organised crime syndicates? Look, I'm, I'm sort of in of the general view, and I've been on the record numerous times about it, which is that um, historically it's shown us to rarely result in a positive outcome. So let's go backwards in time. John Gotti, New York City, the head of an American mafia of Gambino family, we take him out, we send him to jail. What was the net result? Well, the Gambino family got smaller. There's no doubt about that. Zero real effect on the American mafia. Today, the Gambino family is still operating. Uh, they're still involved in criminal enterprises in the US. Let's head down to Colombia. We saw the Medlin cartel taken out. What did it do? Well, uh, Pablo Escobar's dead, um, so the snake's head was cut off. But what we saw was a complete decentralisation of the drug trade. So all of a sudden we saw the rise of a range of groups. We saw uh, coca plant being grown in all new locations and we saw the Mexican cartels rise. Fast forward, let's look again to El Paso in Texas and Juarez across the road in Mexico and, you know, Mexican cartels. So, you know, we saw the boss taken out there and once again, what did it result in? Well, guess what? Juarez is still one of the biggest locations for the movement of drugs in um, South America or from South America or Central America, I should say, to the US. Um, so we're not seeing really that much change. Taking out C.C. Lop, well, look, you know, C found himself creating, um, was a true entrepreneur and bringing the region's uh, criminal groups together over the last decade. Uh, he embedded and brought together all of the Chinese triads. He created a perfect mix by negotiating and bringing together a true transnational organised crime group that extended from chemical and pharmaceutical producers in mainland China, Taiwanese cooks in the jungles of Myanmar who were paying rent to Myanmar ethnic groups, moving drugs through Thailand and Vietnam, selling from everywhere, from the slums of, of the Philippines, selling yaba through a low-purity form of methamphetamines all the way through to crystal meth in Australia, and then in reverse, creating a range of money laundering activities across the region. Now, all that infrastructure remains in place. So C.C. Chi Lop and Lee sitting in, um, sitting in a jail somewhere waiting to, you know, and they're still, it's only alleged, they still got to have their fair day in court. Uh, I think will have very little impact at all. The barriers to market entry in this sort of crime activity are really low. So, you know, if you want to talk about an economic sense. Mm. I'm just going to go back to Mexican cartels for a moment. There's been extensive uh, journalistic coverage of the way in which different cartels have risen and fallen, and sometimes that has been because of particular leaders being taken out of the situation, and sometimes it seems to be in response to this sort of surges in really opportunities at a almost a grassroots level in different areas of Mexico. Do you think that... If we say that dismantling the funding and resourcing 
opportunities in the Southeast Asian context can provide a more effective policing strategy, perhaps in addition to, but instead of just cutting off the head of these organisations. For the Mexican cartel situation, which we know is so linked to the Southeast Asian context, would that strategy have any effect in Mexico or is the rise and fall of particular cartels too linked to the severe instability and opportunity in that area? Look, I, I'm, I'm going to start this the answering that by um, by doing what you would love as a, as, a, as a just finished academic, which is giving an academic example of the majority of our understanding of transnational serious organised crime originates from a US Senate review that was done uh, by a guy called Donald Cressy. You know, more than four or five decades ago. Now, that's that's a really dated approach. He studied American mafia, and he created what we call today our understanding of this hierarchical structure of organised crime. So, and I'll use gender terms because they are generally, you know, the Mister Big who's sitting at the top, you know, his captains and then his lieutenants, etc. The theory is just like a hierarchical organisation. You take the top piece out, and the rest falls apart. Um, unfortunately, organised crime is sometimes disorganised. It's not that hierarchical command structures that we're so accustomed to. And I think that our our way of conceptualising that needs to change. So the the short answer to your question is this, you know, El Chapo made the Sonola cartel what it is today through his leadership, his entrepreneurial style, etc. But other groups might rise in a very different way. Um, the way they control them. So, for instance, you know, in uh, Mexico, the use of violence in, in competition, well, we don't see that in that same way in Southeast Asia. What law enforcement needs, and, you know, I probably should have said right at the start, the Australian Federal Police and Police should be congratulated on arresting C.G. Lop. Okay, there's deep psychological value in that. So let, let's leave that there. If you really want to pull them apart, well, you have to take a very strategic perspective and say, well, where are the centres of gravity that make them work? And now in terms of the money-making of drug production in our region, you know, the profit levels are so high. These guys, we've been seizing increasing quantities of uh, methamphetamine in this region over the last te- decade. Now, price, purity and availability at the wholesale level remains unchanged. And in fact, the price for a kilo of uh, crystal methamphetamine in Vietnam has dropped by about 35-40% over the last several years, which shows an increase in supply. So we have to look for alternative methods, and those alternative methods have to include attacking um, the proceeds of crime. And I've, I've always been a big, huge advocate of this, is if you deny criminals the benefits of the proceeds of their activities, um, you reduce the, the attractiveness of that trade. Absolutely. We know that syndicates like Tichi Lops have behaved over the last you know, 10, 20 years in an increasingly first regionalised and then transnational way. Do you think then that suggestions of having a Magnitsky-style act in Australia would do what you're, what you're advocating, which is be able to, you know, limit the opportunities for enjoying money that has been earned through abusive and corrupt means and also attack and dismantle these supporting structures of syndicates? Look, I do. I think, um, you know, you always got to keep in the back of your mind, as, as policymakers, and, and you and I working in, a, in an applied policy institute, you know, the, the, there's a desire to want to find, you know, the golden bullet 
the, the one that's going to solve every bit of the problem. Um, the Magnitsky Act is a really effective means of preventing people from entering countries who are yet to be prosecuted or can't be prosecuted and preventing them from being able to use the financial institutions within a jurisdiction. So they're an incredibly powerful tool. But they're a sharp instrument that must be applied specifically. You know, So we need to think of it as one tool, one mechanism in a range of different possible ways of responding or disrupting organised crime. Absolutely. No, I really agree with you on that it needs to be used as a precise uh, tool of law enforcement as well. Otherwise, it would seem that, you know, there's a real possibility of Australia running the risk regionally of being viewed as a self-appointed police force and even worse, possibly a moral arbiter, which is would be really damaging to our soft power capabilities. One of the things that transnational serious organised crime groups leverage is the gaps and spaces between jurisdictions, the points where mm. law enforcement can't work together. So in this region, so in Southeast Asia or the Asia-Pacific or the Indo-Pacific, police-to-police cooperation is critical in being able to share intelligence and being able to share and collect evidence against groups that are working across jurisdictions. So um, the Magnitsky Act needs to be applied carefully to ensure that we're not disrupting those very important relationships. Absolutely. With regards to those relationships, we know that precursor chemicals that appear in Mexico and then wind up in Australia as part of this increasing supply of methamphetamines often began their journey in China. Do you think our tense relationship with China might have resulted in a pause of the bilateral efforts previously, you know, really effectively made by the AFP and Chinese law enforcement with examples like the MOSC post in China that was launched in 2007 to counter organised crime regionally? Um, look, I think there's still some reasonable cooperation between the Chinese and Australian police forces, and that should be applauded. There's an increasing amount of efforts to regulate the chemical and pharmaceutical industry in ch mainland China. I think that one thing we have to keep in mind here in Australia is that there are tens of thousands of facilities, so chemical and pharmaceutical facilities across mainland China. That's a, that's a really difficult number to regulate and to ensure compliance. There's also evidence of a decreasing amount of seizure of pseudoephedrine going into the Golden Triangles. Pseudoephedrine is one of the key precursors for the production of crystal methamphetamine. And the message there seems to be a bit mixed because the finished product, so the finished crystal methamphetamine that's being seized at the moment, is pseudoephedrine based. So the pseudoephedrine is either being produced by using pre-precursors from China or it's there is a flow of uh, pseudoephedrine coming from China still. And I guess that's the, the key message on precursors and that much, much more work needs to be done in the region. So I might wrap up with one last question about recent events in the region. We do know that there is a significant correlation between conflict zones, political instability and opium production, and we've seen this extensively in Myanmar and before that in Afghanistan, beginning with you know, a significant ramping up of opium production as of 1979 and by 1984 supplying 80% of the world's opium. So I'm wondering, are there ways that the Australian law enforcement agencies should expect the coup in Myanmar to exacerbate? organised crime and opium drug production and trafficking in the region? Or is it really a question of just tailoring our relationships to work effectively with the military government as opposed to the democratic? Look, I think there's always a risk. Transnational serious organised crime groups and the ones already operating 
in Myanmar take advantage of the security situation. So they take advantage of the fact that within the wide Shan state, um, the rule of law is, is far from perfect. Um, so c- could they make greater use of that move, precursors or finished product around the countryside? But I think there's a really strong possibility. For law enforcement and policymakers, I think there's a broader challenge here, which is... Uh, what was really needed, we were getting great cooperation over the last several years at a multilateral level, so through the Mekong MOU, through the UNODC. We're getting really good bilateral cooperation on a police-to-police basis, so a lot more sharing of information and intelligence. One of the challenges for the Myanmar government was capacity, and so a lot of investment was going into capacity development of, of policing agencies. Unfortunately, I think that given the nature of the coup, that that policy lever is not, no longer going to be available. So uh, improving the capacity of the police force under the current junta will be at risk, and that's not just in terms of Australian aid programs or police-to-police cooperation, but I think more broadly, globally, um, there's a lot of concern about that. So it certainly won't help the situation. Mm. Um, but uh, to be very clear for the people listening, you know, it, it's pretty much a, a worst-case scenario at the moment. So we're seizing more drugs than ever before. The price is going down at the wholesale and retail level. Uh, purity is exactly the same. Um, we're seeing a movement from Yaba, which is low-grade methamphetamine, to high-grade crystal methamphetamine, and availability is through the roof across the region. We've got, a, you know, we've got a growing crisis in the region as a result of that production levels. Thanks so much for your time today, John. No worries. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We're excited to bring you a special episode next Tuesday to mark International Women's Day, so please look out for it. 